Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. On Theory, Sections 1 through 11. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be discussing Clausewitz's On War and On the Theory of War. Uh, just kind of beginning this idea of how we come about with theory and what theory is supposed to accomplish. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about Belagarth. It's, it's officially off-season for more, most of northern uh, Belagarth, and for a lot of us who do any sort of foam fighting, uh, absolutely. You might be thinking, well, why? It would be really cool to do uh, battles in the snow and, and you know, get really into that sort of thing, but the reality is our weapons turn to bricks under about 50 degrees, in which case they become very dangerous. So unless we have an indoor space, which Stygia does not this year, it just means that we don't fight. Uh, normally we would be fighting in the university, but we failed to have any university students within our group, so we can't get any sort of university club status, uh, which is how we normally get some sort of space, is by recruiting on the university. But it's been a weird year for such things. So well, I won't be talking about that as much in the upcoming bits, um, except for the fact that we're going to be going to Battle for the Ring. If this Omicron, Omegon, the new Transformers villain sounding variant doesn't completely mess up our plans. We're going to be going to Battle for the Ring in Southern California, getting some great interview stuff to bring back to y'all. And uh, this uh, next episode, the one that's going to be with Thumbs, um, that's our last episode before we go to Battle for the Ring. So we're going to take a short break over the Solstice time period just to kind of go on a few vacations, get down there to Battle for the Ring, get some good recording done. And then you'll hear from us again around the end of January, beginning of February timeframe. But just wanted to give you a heads up. Next episode is the last one before we take our break. This episode is good to go. Next episode, good to go. After that, yeah, we'll be back. Promises. Pinky swear. So, yeah, the last thing before we get into the meat and potatoes of this one is I want to talk about some of the Warhammer games that I've had recently. I've, uh, I have a great group of friends who indulge me in my need to constantly play. So I get a lot of games in and that's outstanding. So this crusade that we're doing my, like Kaji, myself and, and Turkey Feathers, the crusade that we're doing, if any of you have ever done a narrative crusade within Warhammer 40k, you'll know that there's this leveling up that takes place. As you go through, you got your requisition points that you can spend on better stuff, better gear. Um, you know, as things are leveling up, they they get newer and shinier stuff. 
I know this is very specific, <laughs> but um, so they've been, both been playing this. Kaji and, and Turkey Feathers have both been really playing to the rules, trying to get bonuses to weapons and uh, skills that are really going to benefit the army on the whole. And I am falling massively behind because the last several times that I've been acquiring anything between games with requisition points is me being, I've been trying to get a better disease, trying to get a better, uh, um, yeah, for lack of a better term, just the disease that I, I, you would get on your personal characters. Those of you who don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, it's a crusade rule where you basically get to have your very own virus that kind of grows and that you can make do various things, but you roll, you roll for the vector, the infection and like how it's cured. And so the last two rounds, I've been almost exclusively rolling for, for trying to get a good disease. While these guys have been over here getting better weapons, better gear, better skills. And so I find myself at a lot, I finally have something that's decent. It's okay. Not worth the, <laughs> the downside that I have right now. So it's not that the guys aren't playing well. They absolutely are but I have hobbled myself in a huge way and I'll tell you all about it. So the first one was a game against Turkey Feathers. And he brought a very cool list and it's, it's very similar to the one he's been bringing where he's got this Contemptor Dreadnought with the two Volkite Blasters and a squad of Eradicators. I had brought a Plague Burst Crawler, my two Goo Boys, and then a bunch of, plague, uh, bunch of uh, Pox Walkers. He blew me off the table. I mean, he had a great strategy. He put some amazing things in his, in his army. He had some fantastic synergy going on between his units and, and throughout the entire force. And he played them very well. And the dice loved him. They just loved him to death. We were doing um, supply drop. And so he, he tabled me. Tabled me uh, decently quickly. I, I was down to a force that wasn't even manageable pretty quick. And then because my warlord, for instance, was in cataphracty plate, he managed to stick around for a while. And so the, the way this one is played, you got the three objective markers. And then after turn three, you start to take some away. So every single turn you roll for it. And then one of the objective markers goes bye-bye. So if that's the one that you've been guarding, you're kind of, you know, a fish out of water. You're kind of out of luck at that point. And so that's exactly what happened. I went, I grabbed an objective. My cataphracty dude was there. I was like, all right, this is my, the hell I'm going to die on. You got to pry me out with my, for my cold, dead death card gooiness. And then the first <laughs> objective that was taken away was that one. And so he, he quickly tabled me, went to play out the rest of the game and came to realize that he had been so focused on destroying my army, which he did very well, that he hadn't played the mission. And I was the only one who got any sort of points throughout the course of it there. And that was surprising. He should have won that game. Like absolutely hands down should have won that game, except for, you know, a couple of missteps that led to his victory. Not to say that his victory uh, or, his, or his loss in that way, but I, I, I consider it a victory, like outside of the <laughs> scoring system of our little game. My next game was against Dicky. I don't know if you guys have met Dicky. I, I think I've talked about him. He's another one of the lefties in the realm, uh, BOF guy, awesome fella. 
Um, and so uh, Toto had suggested that uh, the four of us get together, him, himself, Dickie, uh, his, his friend Sven, and myself, get together and do some games. Like a 1v1, but like two different 1v1s going on in the same room so that we could like chat and wander back and forth and just kind of hang out and have a game day. And so we did. It was great. And we randomly determined our opponents and I got Dickie. I had not played against him except for the very, only one time, only one other time that I played against him. And he had brought Blood Angels as well. I seem to fight Blood Angels quite a bit. And, but we had a good match. Uh, we had a good match. I ended up winning uh, fairly handily, mostly just because my Redemptor Dreadnought ate things. And, uh, but, but it was an excellent little friendly game. And it reminded me that there's, there's a lot to be said for a community atmosphere. I still don't necessarily feel comfortable going down to the gaming store and hanging out, you know, just uh, chilling in a room with a bunch of people that I don't, I don't know what's going on there. But going and, and visiting with some friends in a controlled environment where we all know each other's, you know, health status and that sort of thing, vaccination status, that was really fun. It was really fun. So even more than the, the tactical, I, 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 you know, I used the... Um, used an oblique to make sure that I had local numeric superiority and worked my way around to his more powerful units after, you know, destroying all of the stuff on his right flank, which was easily killable. I thought, okay, I'm just going to wipe out this flank and then shift and deal with the, the actual hard stuff, which were his eradicators and blade guard. So fun game, great social hangout, loved it. Just an hour ago, I finished up with a game uh, with Kaji, and it was an excellent game. It was so back and forth. Like there were moments where I thought I was gonna win and moments where he was, thought he was gonna win and where, where I thought he was gonna win and he thought I was gonna win and it just was such a nail biter. And it came down to a couple of key mistakes and a couple of key decisions that resulted in his victory by five points. By uh, 20 to 25, Kaji beat me. And he, and he did so, again, I was tabled. Well, not tabled, I still had some poxwalkers <laughs> who were just kind of shambling across the board. But um, no, it was, a, it was an excellent game. He played his army very well to, to high effect and using all of the, the bonuses that it had. He had a, a two Carnifexes and two, two squads of Tyranid warriors accompanied by a, like a Tyranid Lord, Tyranid Prime dude. And so they came at me the, the cutty dudes did the cutting. My goo boys did their gooing. Uh, the Carnifexes shot and then they rushed in. Plague Burst Crawlers are not nearly as good in melee as a Carnifexes. Go figure. So, yeah, it, it ended up being what it was. I, I had a loss. Kaji had a win. It was outstanding. So this last round, it would have been, I believe, TF's victory. Because Kaji won, but he won by less points than TF had won. And I beat TF technically, and so yeah, I think TF actually won the whole round. Yes. <laughs> We're going to go with yes. So, some excellent games. Was really enjoying this. Uh, hope to have some more excellent games over the next, next coming couple of weeks. And I'll tell you all about them when we do. But that's enough of me rambling on about my personal stuff. Let's move on to what we're talking about today, which is developing theory. Today's episode concerns the development of theory 
in particular a theory toward some toward some sort of positive aim, some sort of objective in which everything within a, a particular apparatus is moving towards the same idea. Now, of course, Clausewitz does this in the most roundabout sort of way. His his logic is is all over the place. You can tell that this was a work that that was kind of spread out throughout his life. But in this particular case, each of the the maxims, the the sections here, is numbered. So where I would normally go and kind of mix things in the section around to kind of uh, fit a certain narrative, to to fit to a certain idea, in this particular case, I really can't because he already has listed everything out in a very numeric order and it establishes a logical progression. So this time around, we're just dealing with the, the bare text and analyzing it within the, the idea as it is, as written, basically. We have to remember when he's talking about the art of war or about you know theories of war or anything along those lines, in most cases, he is speaking about numbers that which can be quantified, that which you, which you can, you know, observe and measure in a tactile sort of way. When we're dealing with these, these concrete theories, you know, he talks about, you know, the coup d'el, the ability to just kind of see and understand the battlefield, but those sorts of things, that comes with natural talent. You know, you can work on that. We can try to, to bring that into ourselves and kind of be able to be in the moment, but there's people who can just do it. You know, it's just part of who they are. And so that person is going to be, you know, more naturally talented in that way on the battlefield. But that's not something that can necessarily be accounted for when we're, when we're trying to go towards a positive theory, something moving forward, because that can't be something that we depend on, you know, okay, this, this tactic only works if the person is brilliant. Okay, well, it's not going to work 95% of the time. So it's not really a valid theory at that point. It's more just personal preference. But... So that's, that's something to remember, that when we're going through this, we're not dealing with ephemeral qualities. You know, we're not dealing with things that, that can't be measured. Everything here has numbers associated with it. And that's something that he's, he's really big about. So, section one, we'll just start there. The first concept of the art of war was merely the preparation of armed forces. And he talks about these being like one-sided material activities advancing by graduation from crude to perfection. So the preparation of the armed forces, again, that's, that's pretty numeric. You know, we're looking for a certain number of spears or a certain number of large swords, certain number of shields, or within something like 40K, we got to try to prepare our numbers of troops and fast attacks and HQs. All of these things are very numeric. It follows a very numeric idea. And it would have been the same thing in Clausewitz's time or really any time in history where war occurred, the idea of preparing our armed forces and having what we need in terms of equipment, in terms of other supplies, in terms of armor, you know, uh, thinking of arrows, javelins, you know, things that you were going to need multiple of, you know, all these different preparation steps are also numeric and can be quantified. And so this is the first concept of the art of war, the first, the first place where these mathematics can really be applied to what we're doing is just in the prep. Next, we deal with the fact that true war first appears in the art of the siege, which again also makes sense. You know, initially it might be like, well, wait a second, art of the siege, really? Like it's, it's not anywhere else, but sieges are probably the most mathematically engaged activity of war, because not only do you have the trenches, which are, you know, dug forward at certain degrees and you have the, 
parts that are moving forward that are also at angles so that you know you can't shoot just straight down one of the one of the forward moving trenches you know it, there's a lot math of math to it and then you're accounting for the weight and lift and distance and arc for your, whatever siege engines that you're using so yeah the art of the siege is extremely material at that point and in this case we start to see the action of intellectual f faculties upon material forces you know, it really starts to matter here. Preparation of armed forces is huge. As anybody in wargaming will tell you, what you bring to the table can often decide one thing or another. Remember that game with TF I was talking about in the intro? You know, that preparation was a, is a really big deal. But here, we also see that everything is numbers. We can kind of analyze everything by being like, okay, we've got this trajectory, the wall is this thick. It can really be applied here. Not a whole lot of room for error, which is cool. Then tactics tried to find its way in the same direction. So tactics, of course, is, is something that's kind of been very fluid throughout all of history. Different tactics have worked in different time periods with different weapon sets. You know, back in the way when, when we didn't have a whole lot of numbers, you know, in, in more like tribal warfare, we're not dealing with large numbers, individual combat matters, matters way more. Because you're going to see a lot more of just individual combat on the battlefield. Whereas when we're dealing with numbers in the thousands, tens of thousands, like we are in Europe during the time period that we're speaking of, the tactics change massively, of course. And there has to be a lot more coordination going on. Um, we don't really get a chance to see this very much. I know in Belagarth, I know uh, the SEA holds some massive events. And so, you know, this, this would also be similar there. If you've got all these disparate units, all these disparate groups, they're just sort of doing their own thing. You've got these larger groups that we're working with. It, it really behooves them to communicate. Really behooves people to, to kind of be on the same line. So when we're talking about tactics, instead of freeing the mind, instead of freeing our range of motion and you know, what we're doing, the idea is to make an army more like an automaton, which functions a lot like clockwork. And the idea is when the, something is supposed to happen, it will happen the way it's supposed to happen because it's been drilled 10,000 times, right? I mean, these guys aren't just walking into battle and being like, all right, pinwheel formation, here we go, and never having touched the field. I mean, some of the French irregulars, the French volunteers, sure, they fall into this category. But when we're dealing with these prepared armed forces, yeah, they, they walk into battle knowing what they're supposed to do. Again, they've drilled it 10,000 times. So it still behaves the way that it should. When the general wants it to do something, it, it responds in a way that is more manageable. The real conduct of war made its first appearance incidentally and incognito. Remember that for a while there, it was only those naturally talented that could really be good at war. You know, Alexander, you know, he inherited one of the best armies, at the, like probably the best army on the planet at the time, but he also had a natural talent for tactics, for strategy. Uh, and so these rules were very ambiguous to begin with. You know, who could be good, who couldn't, who's got that coup d'elle, who doesn't. Uh, so as we're moving forward, reflections on military events brought about a want of theory. You know, we're looking back and we say, okay, here we lost, here we won. How do we make, how do we make more wins? You know, how do we, how do we tip these odds in our favor? And so when we're looking back at these, these past events, when we're looking for theory, what we're really looking for are rules and maxims that are consistent. You know, it's just, it's not incidental. We're not talking about mere opinion or what worked one time for one person. Mm. 
the last series of games that I've had, um, I would not repeat some of those tactics because even though they were successful, I don't want to hinge on, on them being that question mark. Remember I said successful, there's a question mark at the end of that. And when we're dealing with tactics, we don't want that sort of ambiguity. So having rules, having maxims that can bring about what we desire that is separate from just opinion or personal experience. At first, this would have been a distasteful pursuit. As you can imagine, mostly it was, it was the warriors were kind of different than scholars for a good portion of history. You had scholars who studied war, but it's really only been recently that you started to have a, a large number of scholars who were also warriors and could communicate in this way. And by recently, I mean in the past thousand years or so. Before that, it was, there were, there were, you know, patricians or whatever, people who were ranked much higher who were able to participate. But again, in these situations, you know, war has not been a positive thing. Being in an army has not been a positive thing for the majority of human history. You know, uh, remember we're talking about these, these armies are mostly, you know, convicts, mostly mercenaries, mostly the dregs of society who really can't be employed anywhere else. So when you're talking about making theories concerning activities that deal with those people, well, it's distasteful. You know, the people who can make the theory aren't necessarily participating at first. And the people who can make the theory aren't necessarily, or the people who are, who are close and are participating aren't necessarily in a place to form a coherent theory that can then be communicated, right? So, but we move from there to these endeavors to establish a positive theory. And when he's talking about a positive theory, he's not talking about working towards puppies and rainbows. You know, we're, we're not talking about moving and setting these maxims to try to accomplish something quote unquote positive in the way we would de define it. Positive in this case means working towards our goal. You know, a positive theory is something that takes us closer uh, on that from point A to point B margin. You know, it's something that gives us that upper edge, these advantages that we're looking for. That is a positive theory when we're dealing with military science. And so this comes with the establishment of maxims, of rules, and even systems to attain that, that positive object. Now, maxims can be very broad in a lot of ways. Let's, let's back up and kind of talk about some of these terms that we're using when we're, when we're dealing with the establishment of theory. Maxims are, again, they can be rather ambiguous. They communicate truths through metaphor or through very simple statements. They are basically the proverbs of military science, little one-offs that are supposed to <laughs> kind of mean something. But they're the things that we, that where the intent is absolutely conveyed in a short way. You don't need a whole book like on war to really convey these maxims. Each of them is, is concise. So the army marches on its stomach, for instance. Just about all of us have heard that one. If you haven't heard it out in the world, you've definitely heard me say it. That's maxim, right? But it illustrates a point of like an army requires subsistence to actually do its functioning. So we have to maintain a certain nutrition level to, yeah, all of that is summed up in an army marches on its stomach. Boom. You know, war is a continuation of politics by more violent means. Boom. That illustrates an entire idea, an entire concept in just the, the short sentence that was involved there. One of my other favorite ones, you know, every plan is perfect until it meets the enemy. And it's a little maxim, a little thing that again is, it helps you remember it. It's, it's far more 
I think easy for, for me at least, it's far more easy for me to remember something that's like a little quip, you know, a little, little clever thing that can lodge in the brain rather than a long uh, essay, tirade from whoever's going on. So maxims, good. Rules, rules change is the thing with rules. So if we're establishing rules, we have to understand that they aren't hard and, and steadfast rules. Something that is a rule in one moment or one type of conflict with, with a certain type of technology might change based on the development of new technology or, or new tactics. Agincourt is a huge example, a huge example, a really good example of, of this, this kind of idea. The French were still in the mode of the cavalry ruled the, the field. They were still in their minds in the age of the horse. They hadn't caught up to the English longbow technology at that time. And so when they were encountered these arrows, which were able to punch through that full plate, it was a, that's a big deal. By the way, up until that point, that full plate on a horse was brutal, but they didn't account for the change in the, in the meta. And so those rules of the cavalry ruling the field and being able to do whatever it wanted to ad nauseum, well, that changed. That changed real fast on that field and everybody knew about it. So these rules that we establish, they don't necessarily carry on. Another example is this, the type of warfare that we're discussing right now, this so-called conventional warfare that was around at this time, people marching at each other, large artillery emplacements just sort of bombarding. And, and these numbers we've been talking about are rather minuscule. We're not talking about thousands upon thousands of deaths, hundreds maybe, and then people withdraw. So this wasn't a super lethal way of war, at least not at this point. Whereas if you start to look forward at like the American Civil War, World War One, these are both examples where this conventional or what would be called modern type of warfare would be applied and were not good at all. Halfway through the Civil War, you started to have the development of rifling, a lot of rifling in the, in the weapons, which made them accurate. You could actually look at what you were aiming at and have it go there rather than a musket, which was very unreliable in this way. And so the battles where that started often, and you still had people marching in rows as though they were trying to deal with that, you know, in, indiscriminate musket fire, but instead getting mowed down by very accurate fire. That was a big deal. You know, the introduction of automatic weapons, the, the Maxim gun changed the battlefield in a huge way. And a lot of commanders did not take those weapons into account. World War I is filled with tragic stories of, of people getting, you know, we're going up over the trenches and then they go up into no man's land and march across mines and barbed wire into these, these gun emplacements and just get massacred. And this is because the tactics that once worked, again, those tactics were the way. Notice that the French, in the, in the Battle of Valmy, it was numbers that helped them win in that way. And that that's, that actually continues throughout the war for a while, that numbers really mattered and could, could work in this way. World War I showed that numbers didn't quite matter in the same way anymore, that the rule of just sheer weight didn't necessarily matter against that sort of superior firepower. So yeah, rules change, meta changes. The same thing in what we do. Physical wargaming, new equipment is being used and, and improved. Weapons are being made lighter or harder hitting or more versatile. You know, we've got all these different developments that are going on that will advance the course of the meta. 
different armor that is being used and developed and maybe made more to style or, or better in terms of movement. All of this influences the meta. And, and not to mention just technique and tactics. I know in Belagarth, the meta wasn't necessarily getting stale, but it was following a very regular cycle until we started getting a huge influx of amp guarders. And amp guard is a much faster uh, sport because they use much lighter weapons. And so a lot of those techniques still transferred over and there was a suddenly injection of a lot of speed into the game. And so people had to really alter what they were doing, these, these rules that once existed in terms of you know line combat, in terms of conventional combat, had to shift in order to accommodate for that faster play style. And if you didn't, you became obsolete real fast. And so it was either accomplished by, you know, refining your technique. I refined my technique, for instance, in order to hopefully cope with it. Uh, other folks try to catch up on the speed. Uh, TF is one of those who has absolutely matched the meta in terms of speed and even is in the like 90th percentile when we're dealing with that sort of thing. So there are different ways to respond to these changes of rules, but we have to be aware of them. We have to be humble enough to realize that the way we did it, past tense did, isn't the way that it will always be done. It was these commanders, these ones who had been raised in that, in that level of, of thought, who going into the Civil War and into World War I, led their troops to absolute death because they weren't willing to update their mind. They weren't willing to expand where they were to accommodate what was actually happening. 40K is the same way. The meta is constantly changing, either between codex to codex or between edition to edition. You know, things change. What we need on the field changes. How we play it on the field changes. And if we're not willing to keep up with that, again, we become extinct. I know plenty of people that got stuck in seventh and they never left. They're not on the tournament circuit. They're not playing against anybody except for the ones in their small little group because they're stuck. There's people who are stuck in eighth and they haven't made the switch. They haven't wanted to come and, and play with the rest of us. And they're going to be stuck there for a while. And I'm, I'm sorry if, if, if somebody's feeling called out at the moment, but this is one of the things we're talking about. The rules changed and we have to update what we're doing. Unfortunately, that means buying new models in a lot of cases, unless we really have a, a good older build. But in a lot of cases, it means new blood, new additions, new inventions, new technology to our army. And if we wish to remain on the forefront, if we wish to remain competitive, we have to keep up with this. Not necessarily match it. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a meta player. I don't go looking at tournament boards and say, okay, this is what's winning. This is what's winning. I'm going to play my army this way. I look more at what does the field look like? What sort of armies are performing well? And are we talking like more melee heavy? Are we talking more ranged heavy? In which cases are these better? And taking those ideas and making my own idea. You know, not copying what Nick Nonavati does. Not to say that Nick Nonavati doesn't have amazing lists. And that they can't be played well by other people. You know, he's, he's an amazing list builder. But I like to build my own. Not to say that I build any as good as Nick Nonavati. Though I haven't had a chance to test that. I'm probably going to get rolled at my first event, let's be honest. Or my first tournament. But anyways. So these rules, these maxims, help us move forward. And if we're addressing them and if we're, if we're matching them to what reality is, they can help us put into place systems. 
know, systems of doing things. Uh, last edition, in 8th, I had a really good system for winning with my ad mech. You know, I could, I could reliably win a lot of games just using this very same system. And that worked. It doesn't work anymore because the rules have changed. And now the ad mech can be used in, in different ways that are just as good, if not better. And so in this way, the system changed. You know, the way the Blood Angels are played has changed. The way the Necrons have played has changed. So all, all of these different systems can also change. And if we're working towards this positive theory and actively working, Again, this is a process we need to be actively engaged with. I'm playing two, three Warhammer games a week again. I know during the, the height of the pandemic when I wasn't as well vaccinated, I didn't have a whole lot to talk about in that. But I'm back, baby. And, and yeah, so I'm playing, you know, two or three games and I'm refining my, my technique every single time. Whether I win or whether I lose, I, I try to look at the things that, that helped me or hindered me and alter them in such a way that I can improve my system. I'm sure you do the same thing. I'm sure you've got your favorite stratagems or your favorite units to play in certain ways. It's just a matter of, of doing that stuff on purpose, doing it in, in conjunction with other units to attain our, our positive theory. And that's when we come around to it. When we're dealing with this positive theory, again, it's important to know that we limit it to material objects. We're not trying to take into account things like luck. We're not trying to take into account a lot of other ephemeral qualities that cannot be measured. We're looking at material objects because these maxims and systems um, can only really be upon the material things. They're the only things that can really be consistent. And these material things are by nature one-sided activity. We can do all the calculations we want. We can look at a situation and say, okay, if I roll these dice in this way, I should get this outcome, right? Uh, one of the games I talked about the intro, the one against TF, obviously, uh, that one sided, that, that can't be accounted for. <laughs> Calculation isn't perfect. Um, so when we're dealing with one sided activity, it's what, what, what can we do? What can we do in order to help ourselves win? To, in whatever way we're going for, whether that's a particular skill or a particular you know, weapon set or whatever the case may be, in what way can we make our one-sided activity more positive moving forward? Because again, we can't account for what the opponent does. We can try to learn the meta. We can try to study our opponent. We can try to you know, learn how various people fight, but those calculations only go so far. And so real victory lies in our preparation. You know, how much time did we spend, you know, on the back or doing forms or doing cardio or sparring against other people, all these sorts of things, this one-sided activity increases our ability to fight. And something like 40K, again, it's getting those matches in. Are we getting those matches in? Are we looking at our activity simply by itself, not taking into account the luck of our opponent, but simply taking into account what worked for us and what didn't? These are the material objects we're looking for. Now, obviously, we also kind of want to look at how it relates to other things in the world. Okay, how did, you know, my Death Guard match up against this Blood Angel list? How did my sword and board match up against that person's two-stick? Trying to figure out ways within, within those parameters. You know, we're not just talking, okay, ignore the rest of the world entirely. And we're just focusing in on, on exactly what we're doing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we need to understand that that's all we can control. You know, I can't control how the dice are going to go. I'm not, I can't control how 
TF's going to roll. I can't control if I'm, I'm going to re-roll ones. I can't control if the noob that I'm fighting on the field decides to pull some noob foo and hits me in a way that I was not anticipating because nobody's hit me that way before ever. And they only did it on accident, you know? You know, these things we cannot account for. That's luck. Weather. We can't account for weather. We can't account for necessarily fatigue. We can't always put together a plan on being like, okay, I, I am dependent on my opponent coming to the field tired. Terrible theory. Terrible par parameter. <laughs> that's, that's not something that's realistic. So, so yeah, what are we looking at? What are the, the, how can we quantify it? And how can we repeat it in such a way that can be measured? One of these things, one of these uh, positive theories that is almost always useful is superiority in numbers. This is a mathematically sound factor for victory. And as I said, it's not all that matters. You know, when we're looking at World War I, you know, even World War II, and places where those numbers, uh, um, the Battle of Thermopylae, we have uh, the very small amount of Greeks and uh, auxiliaries against the might of the Persian army. And they brought that down to, again, local numeric superiority. And that superiority in numbers, even in that, that small area, it really does matter. And when we're dealing with a large field where you can get, get an envelopment in, yeah, yeah, larger numbers are great. But it's important to remember that they're not everything. Just because we have more doesn't mean that that's going to account for as much on the field. As we talked about last episode, sustaining the troops. That's another thing that we can measure. That's another uh, material object that we can influence. And having a systemization for the subsistence of large numbers, that is a big consideration. Again, that's not something that most of us will have to deal with. Sometimes at larger events, the folks running Feast, all right, like Tandar, one of the guests we had had on a while ago, he often runs Feast. He's in charge of Feast at one of the larger events in the East. <laughs> Rhyming. And so... He, he might have a better idea than most of us what exactly this means, you know, having subsistence for a large number of people. And he's doing it for one meal. You know, he's doing it for the one big blowout meal. Imagine having to do this every single day, three times a day for an entire campaign. Man, you want a system. <laughs> we, we want a way of, of, of getting the stuff there, preparing it and getting it out in the most efficient manner possible to make sure that it's not interfering with the rest of the performance of our military. That's not hindering our efforts. And all this relates to the base. That's another thing that's a material object that we can have some control over. And there we also talk about the subsistence of troops, the rest and revitalization, uh, provisions for numbers and equipment. We're dealing with maybe reserves uh, in case the, the army gets depleted. Of course, backup weapons, backup armor, just in case. Uh, security of communication, making sure that the, there's a way to get messages back to whoever commander or whatever armies that we're, we're dealing with as well. You know, those, that's a, a big thing of the base. And then security of retreat. That's one that a lot of people don't think of, but in case you have to quit the field of battle in a hurry, it's a good idea to have a way to do so. Have a secure line of, of saying, okay, well, I know where I'm going to go. We're going to head back to base. We're going to pack up real quick and then we're going to, you know, get out of here. That's actually really important. And it's something that needs to be accounted for. Maybe not in what we do, as we're not necessarily going to be fighting around our bases, whether or not we're, we're doing intellectual or physical wargaming. But in terms of actual warfare, this would have been a, a really big deal. 
Now, one of the other things that they talk about in here is something that Clausewitz picks a fight with. Now, remember when he, when he gets salty and picks a fight, he doesn't pull punches. You know, this is a guy who's very willing to speak his mind on these topics. And so the, the concept that he's against here is these ideas of a geometric layout, right? And he says that they're utterly useless. And previous authors have, have said that we should do this. You know, Vegetius proposed some sort of geometric, uh, very, you know, this is the way this is. It measures, you know, this many cubits by this many cubits. And this section is this and blah, 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 blah. And a very proper geometric figure. Machiavelli did the same thing. And it's kind of obvious that neither of them really commanded troops in the field because then they would have realized that the terrain does not cooperate and the needs of the camp don't always suit that particular model. So I agree with Clausewitz here. He says, you know, he's picking a fight with these older dudes and saying, that's not the way it is. And I agree. Now, the next thing he picks a fight with is the idea of interior lines. I love interior lines. I have used them to my benefit in physical fighting, in intellectual fighting, interior lines are an amazing way to ensure fast re, like response to whatever. So a good way of, of trying to explain this, I guess, is if somebody's throwing a haymaker and we block it on the inside, well, that gives us the ability to strike then on the inside as well. We got the, the armpit and the guts and all that and ribby goodness to be able to strike at. And so being able to use this interior line, again, it, it, there's a matter of reflexes in it. You can't waste the opportunity. And Clausewitz says this is another exercise in pointless geometry that has no place in the real world. And to that, I pick a fight with him picking a fight with that idea. Basically, I'm a huge fan of interior lines. I'm pretty sure that they're very important to any sort of wargaming, martial art that we do. And that Clausewitz... And... and just one more thing before we transition to the interview. He, this is right after Frederick the Great, who used the interior lines in order to make, like, fight to a standstill against these other major European powers. He's bouncing all over the place between the Swedes and the Russians and the French and the British and just all over the place and managed to fight all of these larger groups to a standstill through the use of interior lines. So I don't, I don't know where he's getting this criticism on, on this particular one. But anyways, that's sections 1 through 11. Next time we'll do 12 through wherever I stop on my notes. And uh, for now, we're going to transition to our interview where I'm going to be talking to Kaji and TF. Here with me to discuss these ideas of developing a theory and applying it to practical situations are my two apprentices, Kaji and TF. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. It's always fun. Well, like I said, it's good to have you guys here. Um, and uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about this uh, developing of theory. And now, Clausewitz is very methodical, of course, about the way he's doing this. And his uh, focus is on using numbers, on being able to quantify what is going on around him, that the art of war is entirely revolved around what can be mathematically accounted for. Um, obviously, in what we do, in terms of, like, Belagarth, this is a little bit more fluid, even though it does exist. 40K, I mean, let's just pass right over that, because Math Hammer exists for a reason, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that numbers directly apply there. But in terms of, like, Bell, how, how do you guys quantify what is going on on the field or going on in a one-on-one -on -one fight? There's many different uh, 
points uh, where you choose which fight you're doing. Uh, like you said, group fights to one-on-one. Uh, many different factors are being pulled. You always factor in the numbers, the equipment people are using, um, how many uh, projectile users there are in a fight, um, and you can't really quantify skill, but you want to take it into a factor. Sure. One-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, it's more about picking the equipment, uh, making sure that you're using your appropriate distance, and controlling which zone you are, you're fighting in. Well, that makes sense. Um, and of course, all those numbers come into play, the, the length of equipment and uh, the reach of the individual, what their, what their individual reach can be, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I, like when I go to do a, a fight, I am typically on one edge. So for me, it's about how many look like they're going to come at me. Do I need to stay there and be a target that is taking up this entire side of their team or are none of them really looking at me? Can I just quickly run in and do a lot of damage real quick? So it's not like hard calculations like M equals R3 squared, therefore I will flank or something like that, right? No. It'd be hard to do that on the fly, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, you don't do quadratic equations uh, <laughs> for, for simple basic pick and choose. At least I don't. I, I, I assume you guys don't either. But uh, no, that, that's a solid point. Again, this one is particularly, I think, more applicable to 40K in terms of like the quantifying, because again, we can look at a unit and say, this unit has a strength of four, a toughness of four, this is how it shoots, this is how it, it operates, and we can get a very good idea about how that's going to interact on the field with other things in terms of those numeric uh, com comparisons. But even if we're looking at skill level, let's say we're ranking people on a, on a scale of one to 10, based on our own internal ranking system. Well, that ranking system becomes completely defunct after an event. Because like, I mean, maybe of the people in the realm, we can continue keeping track of each other. But once the event is over, people go back and they continue at their own developmental pace. So the next time we see them, a person who was a four may have become a six or a seven, just in terms of that, that progression. And so holding them to a, a concrete number, I think is actually a detriment to us in a lot of ways. Being flexible is always a key. Um, and using yourself as the biggest marker I think is important. Uh, if you you know how fast you are, you know how strong you are, you know how long your arms are, how big your stride is. Mm -hmm. Watching how far you traverse and then being able to look at somebody and literally pick them up from their walk and using your information transposed, you might not get the most accurate reading, sure. but you'll have a pretty good starting point. No, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, yeah, the, the quantification, and we're also not dealing with massive armies. You know, if we were dealing with armies the size of what Clausewitz would have been observing uh, during his military career, there'd be a lot more of this numeric value that came into play. But because of the, the smaller numbers that we have, it, it does seem to be a bit more ephemeral in a lot of ways. Um, but not being able to actually see the odds or be able to read precise numbers, we're still able to, to shift those odds 
to make it a little bit more likely that we ourselves are going to find victory. How do you guys play the odds to your favor? I, when I can, try to not do a whole lot more than two or three on one. There are times where, especially if I know the skill level of the particular fighters I'm taking on is particularly low, sometimes you can push it up to four or five and still just like draw their attention and keep them very distracted. Sure. But like if I'm going to go in for actual fighting, I don't generally want to face more than two, maybe three fighters just because that's hard to block more than two weapons because generally I have a shield and a sword so if if I can't use both of those to to block everything that's a problem and yeah I mean yeah absolutely so positioning especially on on bigger groups where you're you're having to do the 1v3 v5 uh, trying to get them to slide around each other, so you're basically forcing that 1v1, and then me and Turkey here both use a running tactic mm-hmm. uh, because it's not being a coward to flee, right? When you when you know you're outmatched and you start running, especially because we've got the nice long legs, uh, somebody's faster than the others. They'll pull ahead, they'll try to catch you, you whip around, you do your damage, you keep going. Pretty sure I saw this in an episode of Red Running Ketchup. And also with, with the, <laughs> the running, and you, like, I a lot of times, especially in our local field, knowing most people's general tendencies, like, I can try and, like, weave around in, like, the, like, catch their attention and maybe get them to follow me a bit here and, like, start maneuvering them around the battlefield in ways that like oh i can get them to like run into these guys they can fight that takes out a bunch of work that i don't have to do sure um maneuver around myself around with that to get to fights that i can do on my own things like that so manipulating the numbers uh strategic positioning uh definitely ways to to even those odds i'm there's there's other ways to do it, of course. And uh, I think some of that also comes down to gear. You know, we can even the odds, certainly by having gear that is not only competitive uh, in terms of the meta, but also suits us as people. You know, there's there's going to be gear that's meta that isn't quite geared toward my body. The, the little flails that were really popular there for a while. I just, they weren't as good in my art. Like the long flail made sense for the way I swing and the, the arcs that I'm going for, but I just could never generate the right power with those little flails. They were absolutely meta there for a while, but they weren't really good for me. Yeah, for me, my weapon choice depends largely on the what role I'm going to take on the field. Like what I like, because on our f- local field, I can switch around a lot and do what I need uh, to like have a good time and also still be competitive. I can switch between archery, sword and board, red, whatever. But once we get to like the big field level, I I enjoy doing sword and board, but I will always feel far more useful as an archer. Mm. 
because there's just so many more targets, I can I can get a much higher consistent kill to death ratio. Like on big uh, event fields, like I can sometimes go an entire fight where like I don't die and I just am picking people off constantly, especially in like a lot bigger region battles, like standing in one area where people are just coming back to that same area, like killing the same people over and over. I dig it. But then, yeah, on our local fields, I do a lot more of, like, sword and board and red. Just because archery is different at the, the smaller field scale versus big fields. You, no, have, you have to be incredibly active or die a lot. Yeah, which that's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Moveset's super important, and that kind of comes off of the equipment. Hmm. Um, you just have different options if you have a big shield, small shield, long sword, short sword, hmm. two-handed. Does it have a pokey? Sure. Um, you know, making sure that you're using your counters to what other people are using, you'll you'll hedge your bets pretty heavy. I'm not sure if I've ever heard it put that way. Movesets, I like that though. Like, and it. It's absolutely legit when you're thinking about it. There's certain things that you can do with a flail that you just you can't do with other weapons, and things you do with other weapons that you shouldn't do with a flail. Um, absolutely, that's a solid point. Part of that just comes from practice. The the more that you're using a weapon, the bigger that you, your your skill set is right. with it. Um, turkeys phenomenal with about a twenty-two to thirty-four inch. From what I've noticed, um, that's about his sweet and butter. That's a pretty big range. Sure. Um, uh, and with the smaller weapons, he's using a lot more of those flippy shots. He comes in, he stands really close, and he fights super close to his chest. But the longer his weapon gets, the further his arm comes out. Sure. Um, and he'll start going low more, too. Go after them legs. Yeah. <laughs> them tasty legs because then you can't chase me and Dark. I can do whatever I want it comes back to those long legs you got to use what you have you got to use what you have um, you know uh, shorter people have uh, a greater use of interior lines that's something that I talked about in the last section but uh, a shorter person has the ability to use interior lines in ways that us larger folks don't because they just have smaller motions to begin with their center of gravity and their, their center of motion is closer together so if they're thinking about it and they're on their toes they can get right up inside us tall guys because we have to be out here in order to function us trying to function small is very difficult because of those long arms and so if you're dealing with somebody who is smaller and more and, and skilled at it i've i've definitely had people really frustrate me because i just they were using those interior lines to their advantage you have to really have to really think about i have to go like fencer stance <laughs> in order to get uh, deal with those folks hmm. yeah that's exactly it. But you actually bring up another, that was an excellent point about another way to improve our odds, which is just practice. A familiarity, not just with our weapons and how it works, but also with other things that improve our odds, like armor. You know, armor is a great way to improve one's survivability on the battlefield if you practice in it. And uh, remember to call it. And remember to call it. That's one of the big things, is if you don't practice in it, you won't remember to call it. Yeah. And you don't know how to move in it either. Like, even, even the lightest armor, even chainmail, it takes some getting used to. 
different different uh, methods of momentum building, you know. Well, and you know I've been doing that full plate fighting now. Yeah, it's hardcore. Yeah. Um, I have about five minutes of active time in there, um, and I can fight almost all day doing Belagard. Sure. You know, even in my armor. You know, that kit's like 45 pounds because I have a full chain shirt and the leather. Um, but it is nothing in comparison to that 80-pound plate. Oh, no. It is monstrous. Um, and the difference in what you can do is, is phenomenal. I, I didn't understand wearing armor until I actually started wearing armor. Right. Well, there's some serious limitations that come with it. Serious protection and serious limitations. It's a, you know, a, a, a gamble. It's not something you can just be big and tough and get through. No. no. Like, yeah, the limitation of motion on, on the shoulders, uh, on the knees mm. even. The knees was the biggest one that I've found so far. Because sure. they bend a lot. <laughs> We're used to being very free with our motions in something like that. even in the way we make our armor. Like, right. It doesn't work a lot of the times the way we... Or you have to build it differently for the the maneuverability we expect to to maintain. No, that makes an excellent point. Whereas, again, the protection that's required yeah. out of that metal armor requires a totally different build. Yeah, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense too. I like our our war skirts. They would not fly in a in a metal a metal thing. Well, I guess if you made it like with proper like a lamellar technique. It might not be terrible, but... Especially if you had thigh pads on there. Yeah. And actually, I think... Because I wear my Belagard's war skirt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because there's a gap right uh, around my hip area mm. that uh, it's not overly large, but something can definitely sneak right through there. And I've had a couple of gnarly hits, but putting that hardened leather war skirt on, uh, not only did it give the armor cute little flair... <laughs> uh, but it had more protection, and the flaps were definitely distracting. Sure. Um, that's been the big thing. We like to hide our legs in those big baggy pants, all three of us. Sure. Yeah. You know? I mean, I know part of that on my part is because I'm self-conscious of my chicken legs, and so the baggy pants make it look like I've actually got some meat. Minus combination of comfy and looks cool and is really useful for misleading where my leg actually is. I just like the misleading. <laughs> I like it all. And I'm also self-conscious of my chicken legs. But we're not here to discuss my my chicken legs. Um, You're the one who keeps bringing it up. Why do you keep talking about my chicken legs, TF? <laughs> dark meat. <laughs> you talked about how he likes that dark meat. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so, uh, of course, these are the ways we can do it on, on a, like a physical fighting field. But there are obvious very sound numeric ways that Klauswitz would be a huge fan of when we're dealing with something like 40k and when we're talking about improving our odds on the table there. What are some, some techniques um, that you guys have noticed that really work for the improving of odds on the table? I attack numbers. Um, I underestimated the power of the Luminarus with the Punisher cannon. Yeah. The heavy 20, being able to fire that twice, 40 shots. That is far more than I, I was giving it credit for. There's some serious ouchie coming at you there. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. Like the new Volkite Contemptor that I got, the eight shots in each arm, like that's, that's a lot of shots. Volume of fire then? Volume of fire is huge. Yep. 
uh, I know you're big on this one, the local numerical superiority. Oh yes, I love local numeric superiority. That's I like I've said. I think I've I've said that phrase more times on this show than I ever have in my whole life. But <laughs> it's also gotten drilled into me that that's like the best thing. Um. Yeah, combination of like you said, high number of shots or high attacks, and then trying to find a good balance of shots or hits that can deal with all the different threats that you can come up like across like having stuff that's good against infantry having stuff that's good against like characters good against vehicles having Just, all your bases yeah, covered having having a solution for each each level and each type of thing is is very useful for sure. Not that I'm overly great at always doing that so far, but... The theory is sound. Yes. Kind of like a lotto ticket. Uh, you can't win if you don't buy. And the more times that you buy, the better chances you have at winning. Um, so the more dice you get, the more chances, the more lotto tickets you got. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And then, like you were saying, there's also like the quality of fire as well. Like a, yeah. an entire army of pure guardsmen is going to put out a huge volume of fire. But how much of that fire is actually going to mean anything against something like a uh, Imperial Knight or something along those lines. Whereas if you have too few shots, if you just have a few dudes who have like some super powerful weaponry, but there's not much of it and they're not able to target multiple different units, uh, then that starts to become an issue too. So that balance. That's part of the reason I've switched away from using LAS cannons as much because they each only get one shot. And it's a D6, so even if it doesn't hit, it might only do one damage. That's true. Now, they have blast now, don't they? So they, they can... I'm not sure. I haven't used them much this edition. But sure that's why I had switched away. Word. Well, then there's the obvious um, getting re-rolls. Making sure that you've got re-rolls built into your list is a huge way of improving the odds. That's that's one of my big things, if I can. Like, the Gene Steeler Colts don't give me a whole lot of options for re-rolls. But in something like an Imperium list, particularly a Space Marine list, you've if, if we can place our captains and our lieutenants in strategic positions and get those choice re-rolls, that, that can turn the tide of a battle. Yeah, especially, like, I know I already brought it up, but that new Volkite Contemptor, like, he does pretty good work all on his own, but you add, like, a captain in there to give him the re-rolls of ones, and suddenly... Like that's that adds like a third of the shots that will probably actually hit. Sure. Which means you have that much many more chances to wound, and on the wounds it gets those extra mortal wounds when you roll sixes. So it's the the captain is definitely worth taking. I dig that. Having those, like you say, those, those re rolls, they're they're huge. Mm hmm. Yeah, those uh, rerolls are kind of a supplement. If you're you don't have enough shots, getting those rerolls to guarantee or to hedge your bets a little bit more, it's basically like just adding their their the number of shots to them. Sure, and if you've got the volume of shots, it just makes that even more potent. Uh, which is something I li I like to use them for, in particular with my ad back. Just just a sheer gross amount of power power going down the uh, the field, and that's. That's the whole point of Admac, in my opinion. I know that they can play be played melee this edition, but I still like to 
to kill my opponent over there. That's says the dude uses the punchy bots. You know, you have to shake it up sometimes. You have to shake it up, and those punchy bots do work. <laughs> they were good last edition. They're good this edition. I love those guys. And then there's me, who used to be all about the melee from the Blood Angels. But uh, I've been switching to a more balanced, which means a much more focus on shooting, which is, has, has led to some like reverse roles in a couple of the last games. Yeah. From what I've typically done against people. Yeah, our game actually would have been a huge reversal because I was the one who wanted to come into the clutch and you were trying to, to kind of kill me over there. That's a good solid point. Yeah. Now, my Death Guard do play much different than Admech. That's true. Like my Admech are to shoot you over there. My, my Death Guard want to come in and give you a big old hug. Yeah, they want to they wanna give you the gift of their grandfather and, and make sure you feel included. It's all about inclusion here. We don't exclude anybody in the Garden of, of Nurgle. That's how it is. Um, but yeah, so obviously there's some very um, numeric ways to adjust that. Cover, I think, is another huge way of increasing the odds. Even just that, that plus one save to, to a ranged attack with the light cover. That can be huge. Absolutely. Uh, especially against the, the lighter fire, like things that have the AP zero or the AP neg one, cover is going to make a huge difference in those cases. Yeah. Uh, examples from my recent games with both of you, I I was thinking that the cool Gravis armor would be cool enough to just stick those eradicators out there and not in cover, and they, they died both times because of that. Yeah. So, even even if you got like some badass armored guys, like they, they, you should still stick them in as much cover as you can put them in. Oh sure, uh, and I mean that just you got. We have to try to use what's at our uh, disposal. Absolutely. If we have cover, we use cover. I need to use my aggressors. I kind of the same idea. There's also those new terrain rules that defensible position, mm. um, and just making sure you're using your abilities to to the maximum on those. Mm. Not forgetting to take double shots. Mm. Yes. And adding on to that, like knowing your stratagems and when they're when they're supposed to be used and when they're useful can also be a bit of a game changer. Oh yeah. I mean the, the a, a reroll is great. Like getting an extra reroll in there can be amazing, but also these armies are designed to be able to, to execute well on these stratagems, to, to use them to bring out the best portions of that army. So using them can, can only improve our odds too, I think. Yeah. Well, before we're, we're finishing up, we're getting toward the tail end of this, and I am always surprised at how fast the time flies. But I just wanted to check in. Like uh, One of the things he really stresses in the last section is about developing a, a solid set of rules and, and maxims and systems we're dealing with what we see on the battlefield because you know the battlefield's pure chaos even even in something in what we do in terms of wargaming the best uh plans always fail when they meet the enemy that's one of my favorite maxims to start us off but but these, these little rules these uh these ideas that you hold true from experience or from observation uh you guys got any little pearls of wisdom for us announce prevention's worth a pound of cure um, that one, that one sits true no matter how you're trying to apply it. If you are stopping something from being able to happen, the enemy can't do that anymore. 
you're cutting that route off, you're, you're controlling the battlefield. Uh, if you prevent what you don't want, you have a higher chance of getting what you do want. Sure. Yeah, no, that kind of covered the idea that I, I had in way fewer words. Word? Well, I know you talked about earlier about, like, making sure that you were manipulating the battlefield to your advantage. Oh, yeah. That's that's situational. Like, sometimes it, it just doesn't... You can't do that because of what other people are doing. But, sure. I mean, when possible, yeah, I definitely enjoy being able to... And find it very useful to be able to manipulate the field to my advantage. Sure. No, I dig that. Um, you know, way, I, this is kind of fitting in theme of the last couple episodes with the idea that an army marches on its stomach. I think that that's very true no matter where we are. And I mean, maybe including especially uh, something like a bell event where you can definitely tell the difference by, by especially like day three-ish. Who's been eating well and who has not been eating well? Who who has the, the solid supply of nutrition and who has been living off of saltines? Don't fight a fair fight. Yes. Like, if you, if you can manipulate a fight to where you have the advantage, you should do so. Mm. Because everyone else is going to be trying to do so. Sure. And not doing so puts yourself at a disadvantage, which is not what you want. I dig that. So, whenever possible... Do not fight a fair fight. Always put the odds in your favor. Mm-hmm. Keep your options open. Yeah. Very yeah. important. And don't believe your enemy. If they make you feel like you only have one way to go, pick a different direction. Don't ever walk blindly into a trap. Always keep your options open. Oh, I dig that. Yeah. I make an alteration. My my war master had a, a saying, uh, you know, don't die tired, basically saying that, you know, uh, or you only die tired when somebody's running from a fight instead of facing down the inevitable. I have changed that little pearl of wisdom to be die tired, which is do everything. Do everything you can to win. Make sure that they that they have to squeeze the last drop of blood out of you. I mean, you guys have fought against me on the field, fought against me on the tabletop. I, I die tired. I don't make it easy for anybody, <laughs> even if I'm going to lose. I don't make it easy. And that's, I don't know, that's, that's one of the big lessons that I would kind of put out there. Um, Give it your all, guys. You learn more that way. That's true. That's true. Well, we are we are done here, guys. I and and I I wish we could have gone on longer. I I know that we were talking before this, and I know we're going to keep talking after this. So, uh, our particular hangout is not over. Unfortunately, dear listeners, our hangout is now over. But you and I will be progressing forward uh, to speak in the next section. But guys, I just have to say thank you. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Always a pleasure to come hang out with you. Indeed. It's it's always a good time. Well, I appreciate that, guys. And uh, for the rest of us, we're going to be moving on to the autumn of 1792. join our study of the War of the First Coalition and the French Revolutionary Wars in the fall of 1792. Now, this is directly preceding the events at Valmy. Remember where the uh, the French 
volunteers stood up to the Holy Roman Empire and repulsed them from their country. A huge upset. A huge deal. But after this invasion fails, after Brunswick needs to retreat with his depleted army back to the Rhine, he leaves the field wide open. Now, this wouldn't be the first time that the lack of coordination on, like, the strategic level kind of shot the French in the foot. But at this point, if they would have moved quickly and, and sought to disrupt this, this retreat, they could have easily turned it into a rout. You know, upset that base of operations where you would normally, you know, run from, that, that secure line of retreat. And, and could have broken up the army entirely. But they made a... A rookie mistake and didn't, but that's because, again, the various armies were not coordinating with one another. However, those armies were now unleashed because they no longer needed to provide a cordon, uh, you know, the, the defensive perimeter, in order to control armies coming in or out. The main threat was gone and they could go on the offensive. And, and they were very much looking forward to this. Again, this was, uh, was the big huzzah, the hurrah that the, the National Assembly had been pushing in terms of the, the warlike spirit. So the first movement that we're going to talk about is the invasion of Savoy, which was the 21st of September, 1792. So that's the day after Valmy. The day after Valmy and everybody hears about what's going on, they're like, okay, well, it's time to go. It's time to go right now. So evidently he was ready to take to the field. But this area of Savoy had long been tempting retribution because they had been in really vocal support of the, the emigres, the expats, the aristocrats that had left and were trying to raise troops. You know, they had been shameless in their support of this and had been warned a couple of times by the National Assembly. And now the chickens had come home to roost. So here they are, getting invaded by a very eager army, and their particular group was commanded by an 80-year-old general. Eight zero. That's old for any time. Really old for this time. So, especially as a in a commanding position, like I, I don't know, I don't know where y'all stand on that, but but it, it, this guy was not up to the task. Wasn't up to the task, and so the army flees, flees to the Alps, the protection of the Alps, and the country just sort of follows in suit. Uh, by the 24th of September, uh, Chambéry had been taken and the whole campaign had been done without firing a single shot. So for all the hubbub, for all of the, the saber-rattling that these, these emigres had done, it's, it still didn't hold up. <laughs> I mean, maybe, of course, it was, it was premature. They hadn't necessarily been able to get a whole lot of support at this point. But... Yeah, this, it, it folded, and it folded fast. Now, part of what they used to legitimize this invasion, because they had to. You know, you can't just go around invading people for no reason. That's bad, you know, that's bad form. People look poorly upon that. You start to get groups <laughs> arrayed against you, if that be the case. And so, one of the reasons that they used for this invasion was that there were expats who had come over. From this area. When we're talking about any of these invasions, there had been people who came over and they had been given funds to raise their own liberation armies, right? For going and continuing the revolution in their their countries or in their, their kingdoms or whatever. Because part of the main motive of the French Revolution was to spread its ideals to all of its neighbors. And so in this particular case, they were like, oh yeah, sure, come on over. We'll, we'll basically teach you how to fight 
the revolution in your territory, and these liberation armies were not very big. You can imagine there wasn't a whole lot of these folks wandering around, and so they were kind of pitiful. But even having them within the ranks gave the justification to be able to go over and attempt to do these liberation actions, right? And so that was the pretense in which a lot of these invasions took place under. The next one that we're going to talk about happened on the 30th of September, 1792. And this was an invasion into Germany that was also not opposed. The, this area had been broken wide open by the, the retreating forces. And so it was a very quick mo motion from Speyer to Worms to Mainz and then to Frankfurt on Main. Just boom, 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 knocked right down. Now, this may seem like a very rapid ex ex like explosion into there. This is just a matter of, of days, really, that these various areas were conquered. But they could have gone further. There could have been more ground gained, but they stopped and they in did entirely too much in terms of like requisitions and conscription. They, they, they really slowed their momentum to do uh, what seemed like rather frivolous things. Once again, there wasn't a whole lot of coordination with the other army groups. Uh, and once again, the lack of oversight, like direct oversight in this particular case, experienced oversight, led to some fairly wasteful action. Now, when we're dealing with, again, with all of these, there's a mainly political objective to it. It's not just about conquering ground. The French army and the, the ideals of the revolution really wanted to seem as liberators as opposed to conquerors. They weren't there to, to uh, sub subjugate another people. They weren't there in order to, you know, bend them to their will. They were there to spread freedom, to spread democracy at the point of a sword. So that, that's kind of what was happening here. They were hoping that as they moved into an area, they would be inspiring the, the residents of where they were moving through, occupying, to see them again as liberators and to embrace these ideals that they saw as paramount to all other ideals. One of the big areas that, again, had been long desired was Belgium, which is there in the Austrian Netherlands. Now, we had talked about how important the Austrian Netherlands were forever ago <laughs> in, in uh, I think, one of the uh, introductory episodes to this particular conflict. But suffice to say that this had long been on the docket for places to be conquered. And so after Valmy, these efforts were resumed to invade Belgium. In fact, the, the guy who was doing this, Dumouriez, was the one that kind of was called back in order to participate at Valmy. He wasn't directly in charge necessarily, Kellerman was, but this was kind of his pet project. This is where he wanted to be, was doing this invasion. So actually we have a battle to talk about here, which is nice. A lot was happening in the fall of 1792. But on the 6th of November, uh, 1792, you had the Battle of Jemaps, or Jemaps. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I'm sure there's somebody in Belgium who's just whacking their head against something. I'm sorry for my mispronunciation. I am not familiar with this particular word. So, yeah, the Battle of Jemaps. We're just going to go with that, or Jemap. Um, you had France versus the Holy Roman Empire. Right. And under France, we had the commander uh, Dumouriez, and the Holy Roman Empire was represented by Albert Casimir. Which, quick aside, I wonder if the, if the Witcher, if that's where they got the name for the, the old advisor dude, Casimir. Was that here? I mean, 
probably is another common name from someplace, but uh, whatever. Back to it. You had a very, very large disparity in numbers on this one. You know, on the French side, they had anywhere between 40,000 and 43,000 troops with about 100 guns. And the Holy Roman Empire had 13,800 troops and 56 guns. Now, they were also far more experienced, and they started off with the better ground. And so there were decent odds in their favor, and at least they thought that their odds were good enough that they stuck around to defend this area. So... Remember that Dumaret had wanted to invade this area um, before the push towards Paris, and that this was a critical area. But of course, you know, they needed to pull back in order to defend Paris, the capital. However, so we're, we're moving forward with this pet project. Now, the Holy Roman Empire actually had around 20,000 troops, but they were spread out over a long defensive line. However, these are well-trained regulars, and so they had a lot of trust in their ability. You know, Valmy was a fluke. You know, that was them advancing on the French. Now it was going to be the French advancing on them. It was going to be this new green army advancing on seasoned vets. You know, they were expecting that to count for something. And, I mean, it did. Numbers aren't everything. But, well, our army here, the French army, consisted of those volunteers that we had talked about. Like a, a whole lot of, of green troops, a whole lot of the folks that had been a part of the National Guard. Uh, and then you had experienced commanders and also aristocrats who were still in charge and still at, at ranks of high position who were able to kind of steer this military. We're not talking about anything near as well polished as what the Holy Roman Empire had. You know, these folks were career soldiers. They had been fighting in conflicts uh, for, for a long time. Seasoned vets. Well, yeah, these green, but very, very, very enthusiastic. Remember that we're, that we're talking about a, a new army that's full of zeal, that's full of, you know, the, the revolutionary fervor for their ideals. And so this is a very motivated force. So it, I, I don't know, it kind of makes up for the lack of experience, which is sheer excitability. They want to be there, you know. So these Austrians, they're dug in on the ridgeline. And it's a great position. You know, it affords them a view of the plane, not a huge amount. We're not talking like Lord of the Rings uh, ridgeline, but at least enough of one to, you know, to be up and have a, to be in a position of command of the battlefield. However, they had only left a small area for a possible retreat. There was one bridge, one bridge going out the backside of their lines that was to be used for any sort of retreat. So you can tell... Again, based on the positioning and based on you know, their willingness to stay and this, this really small retreat zone, they weren't expecting to. <laughs> the, their plan was not to retreat. They, and, and every, I mean, I know any of us going into a, a conflict, we should be planning to win. But these are, these are actual people. These are actual lives. So in war games, we just get back up, we play again. But here, conserving your force is a big deal. So the fact that they didn't make a better plan and the fact that they, they thought that, you know, at a, you know, half, conservatively half the same number as this invading force, but it ended up being like a triple, they've got to triple the numbers. That's a whole lot of confidence bordering on arrogance as actually we'll see here in a second. So the French plan was to overwhelm them with their numbers which is a good plan. They ne weren't necessarily going to outmaneuver them because the, the Austrian army was well situated. 
you know, they had basically impassable in a lot of ways to the right and to the left, you know, their back was to impassable terrain. And so very defensive spot, very good spot to be marching at. And in this particular case, yeah, numbers are probably going to be your best idea. There's not going to be a whole lot else that would work in this particular circumstance. And so the plan was not to hit the center because that's where you're going to get hit with the most fire, but to turn the flanks, to go to the left, go to the right, and try to roll up both flanks and kind of get behind them to cut them off from that small line of retreat. And it's a great idea. And it may have worked better if we were dealing with more seasoned soldiers, but this was uh, poorly executed. These attacks were not well coordinated whatsoever. You just kind of, and it went like if they had like really hammered both sides at the same time, you know, it may have worked faster, but in this particular case, they did not. It was just like small little forays from various commanders. And again, they were spirited. Talking about very spirited attacks, but not necessarily ones that did a whole lot of damage. And so eventually Dumouriez sends a column to the center, just like right up the center while these, these side attacks are still occurring. And they managed to gain a foothold there on the ridge line. And they managed to turn the, the enemy right flank at the same time. So this, this spelled the end for the Holy Roman Empire. They were getting wrapped up. Everything was, uh, was not going their way. So they start to retreat. And they actually had a pretty good retreat. That remaining flank covered the, the center and the fractured flank as they retreated across that small bridge, and then they did so themselves. Now, if the French had moved faster, if there was more coordination within this army, again, they could have easily routed uh, this force. They could have prevented them from withdrawing. They could have taken some prisoners, maybe taken some more hardware. But we're also dealing with a fairly green force in terms of actually fighting together and the capabilities in terms of chain of command, right? And so the French actually uh, had a higher casualty rate and the Austrian casualties were mostly caused by the plentiful French cannons. Remember they had a hundred guns. So even without a whole lot of rifling, even without being super accurate in terms of a weapon, there's a lot of them. They can lay down a lot of fire. So the Austrians did suffer quite a bit under that. Um, but the French suffered a high, higher casualty rate overall. And they let this smaller force escape, as I said. But again, what we're dealing with here is the psychological impact, not just the Holy Roman Empire, but everybody else that's looking at this new French army, that they beat the regulars, these volunteers, these you know, green behind the ears, these green and wet behind the ears, or green behind the ears, whatever, we'll go with that. Um, these new troops had beaten seasoned veterans, regulars on the field. Again, this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And it, it sends a loud message and it, it brings up this French war spirit. Remember, they were already being whipped into a frenzy by these various political factions. Well, this just gave those political factions more ammunition more fuel for the fire. Look how well we did. Look how well the revolutionary zeal has carried us over, you know, over odds that should have been insurmountable. Here we are with our victories at Valmy, our victories at Jemap. Like, you know, this, this was something that they absolutely seized upon for their propaganda. And it inspires more aggressive tactics. You know, to, the French stopped playing entirely defensive and they're going out and they're going on the offensive and they're going to be on the offensive until, you know, kind of the spring of 1793 when they start to suffer setbacks. 
but we'll go into that next episode. Suffice to say that in this particular case, they were very much emboldened and set off to, to win a much more high-paced war. And, of course, this also led to the short-term occupation of the Austrian Netherlands. Not very long, mind you, but a short-term occupation, a feather in the cap, if you will, proving that they could. Getting the small amount of strategic benefit of being there. Now, one might say that they were unsuccessful in this occupation because recall that these invasions, this military activity, was justified under the pretext of the French spreading their ideals of bringing the, the revolution to other people and helping them achieve this sort of liberation in of themselves. But some people didn't want to be liberated. You know, some folks just, they, they were happy the way they, things were. And in this particular area, you had a large conservative population that wasn't necessarily ready to cast off the monarchy. You know, they were doing just fine. So the, the ideals didn't so much take here. The, the, the effectiveness of what the French were trying to accomplish wasn't necessarily done as much here just because they were dealing with folks that weren't open to it. You can't really spread ideals to people who are massively resistant. You know, look at the Soviets in Afghanistan. They tried to impose their ideals, uh, you know, support these various communist parties against a country that was very conservative and was very, very not on board with the reforms that was, were being pushed. And so the Soviet Union was only going to be so effective because a large portion of the country was in outright rebellion against these, these reforms, these ideas that were being put into place from outside. They didn't occur from within. You didn't, we didn't have mo movements that were occurring within nations that were changing the mind. What we had here was you know, somebody forcing their ideals. And even though the, those ideals may seem altruistic, especially to those of us who live in, you know, democratic countries. We might sit here and look at it like, well, of course, of course, if you're dealing with going into a monarchy, of course, they're going to want to be democratic you know, or a republic or whatever the case may be. Of course, if they're dealing with a dictatorship or a fascist society, of course, they're going to want, you know, democracy, freedom, liberation. But it's not always the case. You know, especially here in America, we look at Soviet Russia and we're like, man, that was such a terrible time and a terrible place. And, and there were a lot of Soviets that were super into it. Like that was their place. That was where they wanted to be. They wouldn't become, you know, a, an American if you paid them. They were into that level of communism. And if we had gone there and we had invaded and succeeded in that invasion, which, you know, Lord knows with the nuclear proliferation, that would not have ended well. But let's just say hypothetically that we did, you would have found a whole lot of resistance in the Soviet population to Western ideals. And so as much was the same here. You had, you had people who had their own ideas, their own ways, the where they had been governed, the way they wanted to be governed, and another army was coming in and saying, nope, you're going to do what we want. We're going to put these systems in place so that you behave like us. And it did not go over well. Or rather, it was just unsuccessful, you know. After, after you know, this particular period of occupation was over, they just went straight back to the way they had been. But probably the most successful thing that this, that this action, these, these actions, you know, the, the movement into Savoy, the movement into Germany, this movement into the Austrian Netherlands, what it really accomplished was that the fighting of 1793 would mostly occur outside of French borders. So instead of being on the back foot within their borders, you know, basically trying to play protect the Paris, now they're going to be fighting in Germany, 
in the Austrian Netherlands, in other places. So this gives actual France time to prepare in other ways and develop in, in a fashion that isn't just entirely defensive. Remember that we've been dealing with a France recently that is deeply paranoid, but also deeply patriotic. And so they've been galvanized by this war effort, by this, this motion. You know, when, when uh, Brunswick is moving towards Paris, that galvanizes all of Paris. You know, these petty differences are largely set aside. And, uh, you know, after that, that initial panic that we were talking about where, uh, you know, there were a bunch of people that were slaughtered, in a large way, the efforts of the city came together. You know, the National Assembly was pointed in one direction, and that was the defense of Paris, the defense of this, this new baby republic, this baby democracy that they were forming. With that threat outside of the borders, other developments could now come to the forefront. Without that threat being the most important thing on everybody's mind, other politics, other dramas could then develop. So yeah, this was the fall of 1792. We had dealt with Valmy, which is where the French had first stood up with this new army, this revolutionary army, against far more experienced, with not, not just commanders, but also troops, and had managed to push them back. It hit a stalemate, by most accounts. And then here, they managed to not only prove themselves, but also beat, like straight up beat, actually make them retire from the field while they took their positions victory against forces that conceivably they shouldn't have been. They had the numbers, they had the zeal, but in terms of training, they weren't there. But it was enough. It was enough. And so in, in these various situations, the French had been proving themselves. And this is making them even more of a threat. Recall when this revolution was just beginning, Europe was not paying attention at all. It was like, okay, there's some rumblings over there. Okay, they're going for like a constitutional monarchy. You know, as long as Louis is left alone and you know, his household is safe, we really don't care. Okay, they're starting to get dangerous. All right, they're killing people. Oh, Lord, their army is actually pretty good. You know, this, this steady escalation of force and of notoriety. And the ability, like what, the, what people are seeing when they're when they're actually observing France, this is drawing a lot of attention. You know, it's not just the Holy Roman Empire and you know parts of Prussia that are that are starting to really feel this and really want to participate. You know, of course, you have Britain across the way that has been looking at them the whole time. You have Spain, you have Italy, you have Russia. You have a bunch of different folks who are now getting a little uncomfortable at this new shiny powerful, aggressive France. And that's where we're going to leave off. And next time around, we're going to talk about the spring of 1793. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargaming.com podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.